Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, you sent me an article from The New Yorker, and it was about facts. It was about knowledge, and it was about Wikipedia and Jeopardy. The article was interesting because it kind of mixed it all together, and here's the best paragraph I read. Is it still cool to memorize a lot of stuff? Is there even a reason to memorize anything? Having a lot of information in your head was maybe never cool in the sexy cool sense, more in the geeky cool or class brainiac sense. But people respected the ability to rattle off the names of all the state capitals or to recite the periodic table. It was like the ability to dunk or to play the piano by ear, something the average person can't do. It was a harmless show of superiority, and it gave people a kind of species pride. And Don, the article just goes on to talk about in the age of information, the internet, we can get facts all the time. Do we still need to know anything? And then it just kind of goes into a breakdown of the history of Wikipedia and Jeopardy and how it all kind of mixes together. What do you think of the article? I thought it was really interesting because there are so many things that we used to do that revolved around not knowing what a fact was. You know, you'd sit around with your friends and argue about who had a better record, this person or that person, or which basketball team was better, or who had the most home runs. And those debates would just go on and on until maybe you knew somebody that knew something. And knowing something was definitive and important. And being smart was the person that could answer the question that nobody knew the answer to or was debating about. Now that's all on Wikipedia or the internet at large. Is it important to be smart anymore? Is it important to know things? I really thought it was interesting to think about these ideas. And you and I have talked in previous podcasts about the idea of having this social knowledge where everybody knows the same number of facts across the country and that it's really important for our generation of, of learners to all have common things that they know and that the internet just continues to discount knowledge, right? Usually at this point, I mean, I get students that are like, why do I even need to know that? I can just look it up. It seems like more and more we're moving towards a society that sort of almost has a disdain for making people memorize long lists of facts or memorize things for tests, right? You're just going to spit it out and take a multiple choice test and I'm going to forget it. And as we've talked about, retention rates for knowing anything usually tend to be pretty low, but then there's always these interesting sort of parlor tricks like memorizing your state capitals or our friend Kevin Kopeck. I'm always amazed that he knows like every street and road throughout Oakland County and Michigan. And he can tell you what fast food stops are on different exits throughout the state of Michigan. And I'm always kind of impressed by that sort of knowledge, but yet does he really need to know that kind of stuff? Well, that was a skill. You know, you could ask somebody for directions or there was somebody that knew how to get from one place to another and the best route and how you could save time. And, oh, this is my secret way to get here. Like that was a skill people had before Google Maps. And it was important to understand where these places were or how to get it or this little thing that nobody knows about. But now everybody knows about it. I kind of like this nostalgia for hidden knowledge and being valued for your ability to give directions. Well, if you don't know anything, then I guess you know nothing, right? And yet, if your brain is just full of useless facts, is that better than nothing? I mean, the other day, my daughter is memorizing the states on a map right now. And eventually, I'm assuming that they'll start working on capitals, right? And I'm not upset that we're, we're working on that stuff, that we're memorizing. Although, at the same time, if my child can never tell me that Bismarck is the capital of North Dakota, I still think she's got a shot at a successful life, right? 
Yeah, but maybe it's the process. This is our boy E.D. Hirsch saying the process of having common knowledge and understanding things. And that Bismarck sounds quite German. Maybe there's German ancestry in North Dakota with a unicameral legislature. Oh my gosh, these are a bunch of facts. Does it matter? Does it make me smarter? Do people care? And that's a really good point of it's the process, right? Hey, memorize this just because I said to memorize it. Don't question the process. And if we all just say to every kid, hey, you don't need to know that. You can just look that up. You don't need to know that. Eventually, it seems like, well, what are we going to ask them to do? Are we just going to ask them just to kind of be ignorant of everything? At the same time, you and I have talked a lot about how education is made of value statements. And you and I might value that our kids know their state capitals, but maybe they don't know other things. And I guess that just seems like another value statement of we choose this, but not this for people to know. But I find myself selling the idea of problem solving and analytical thinking to parents and students alike in teaching economics. And my sales pitch goes something like, economics class is great because we're not just memorizing facts. We're solving problems. And these analytical skills are useful in whatever discipline you decide to pursue for a career. And it's not like history. That said, in hindsight, I really think history is important. And it's important to know where we've come and what we've done and what's going on in the world. It startles me how little some kids know about other places or about our own history, even just local. It's wild to me. Don't you have to have some historical knowledge or some context of the world in order to interpret what's going on in your life? Yes. And again, if nothing's in your brain, then I guess you are nothing, right? Isn't that what really ultimately what facts come down to is it makes up something. You know, in this article, it talks about the idea of Wikipedia as one of the earliest things that the internet sort of started making. And it's kind of fascinating because I remember you and I sitting in a staff meeting right at the beginning of my career and our school librarian stood up and she said, guys, there's this thing out there called Wikipedia. Kids are using it and they're just looking up anything that they want to know about. But you need to be careful of this because Wikipedia is not controlled by anybody. Anybody can edit it. And therefore people can go in there and give people the wrong information. And I can remember all of us being like, <gasps> and then for a while, remember, we used to tell kids, don't go on Wikipedia. Wikipedia is bad. There could be bad knowledge. Don't use it as a source. Oh, yeah. I remember saying that, that there are there was a Wikipedia page that for some brief moment said there are manatees in the Great Lakes. And I, that was my example. There are no manatees in the Great Lakes. You can't use Wikipedia. But all the research now says Wikipedia is more accurate than is a normal encyclopedia, which, by the way, they don't publish anymore, although do exist on the Internet but are far less used than Wikipedia. The founder of Wikipedia was on conversations with Tyler, Tyler Cowan, our favorite economist. And he talked about the accuracy and the people that edit these pages and how it's really quite good. And they're not compensated in any way, shape or form. It's really interesting that that's where all the facts reside now. And it's interesting that in about a 15-year time period, nobody now questions your use of Wikipedia. In fact, Wikipedia helps to solve a lot of uh, arguments that people have. It helps to give people facts that they want. And I feel like what we sort of learned is that people aren't that interested in going in and, I guess, adding a bunch of wrong information about the, the Crusades or about the Spanish Inquisition or about Christopher Columbus, for the most part, people are just sort of interested in making sure that there's good, solid, factual knowledge. Wikipedia has set up a, a, set of, a series of standards where people do need to cite where they're getting their information from. And there seems to be an interesting invisible hand to the whole thing where people are checking. 
And if people disagree, they go in there and they tend to actually change the information to become more accurate. That's sort of interesting that here we are. Now all the facts that we need are being changed by humans and in a fairly good, reliable manner. And one of the things Wikipedia does is they try to find people that are working for marketing companies that are changing facts just to make things look better than they actually are. And they certify the people that are editing. And what's happening is the editors are very, very accurate. And people don't glorify themselves that much. And it works really, really well. The article said that Wikipedia, if you think about the internet at this point, is maybe the greatest success story of the internet. When you think, here's a free product, there's no advertising on it. They do ask for donations, which apparently they get about $100 million a year in donations. Everybody across the world can use it. It's in multiple languages. It's maybe the best thing we've got. Everything else at this point is just covered in ads or is trying to steal your data, is trying to learn more about you, is trying to connect you to a social network where they might be trying to give you bad information or might try to, you know, slant the truth to get you to see something through a political lens. And yet there's Wikipedia. I've never heard anybody say anything negative about Wikipedia at this point of view. No, not so much lately, but it is the point where you talked about there's no ads. And there's also the aspect that Jimmy Wales who was the entrepreneur that started Wikipedia, could have been a billionaire. He could have been what we want to be, billionaires. However, he's worth about a million dollars because he decided not to monetize Wikipedia. Here's somebody that looked the giant profits in the eye and saw his contemporaries, Sean Parker, Mark Zuckerberg, become billionaires. And he just stayed pat with what Wikipedia is. Maybe he is a hero because he's taken the facts and the data over the money. That's a really good point. You're right. Most people probably don't even know that man's name, probably because he's not a billionaire and he doesn't get to throw around his money. He doesn't get to go to congressional hearings and stuff like that. And you're right. It's almost like he gave the world a really interesting public good that a lot of people use. I don't even think we really understand how often people go to Wikipedia, including ourselves, and it's there and it's basically run by everybody. I mean, you and I could go on there and start adding entries or start working on editing entries. And yet it's the greatest kind of collective thing we have. I mean, even people that view the world through like a Republican or a Democratic lens, they probably both in some ways unknowingly are working on the same Wikipedia pages and coming up with a fair set of facts to write down for the world to consume. Would you agree? Absolutely. And they're doing so for free at a public, for a public good. And a public good, to be clear, as defined by economists, is a good that everybody shares, that is shared and it can be shared for the better or for the worse. It can be damaged, but it's also one that's free. And that's exactly what Wikipedia is. It's free knowledge for everybody without advertising. It's a unique good at this point. And therefore, if Wikipedia is out there and most people don't question the accuracy of the facts, coming back then to the original sort of question is, does it matter to know anything anymore? If we know we've got Wikipedia at our, you know, in our hands on a phone or on a computer, what is it we should be learning or knowing anymore? It just seems like it kind of discounts what schools try to do or, or what people think we used to want to know. And I guess that would be what context do you need to understand and go about your life? And we're pretty high-handed here in the beginning of the conversation talking about states or countries. But you and I know very little of what's happening in social media. We're not on TikTok. We're not on Twitter. We're not on 
Facebook for the most part. What are we just as bad as everybody else? Cause we don't know what's happening in the current culture. Shouldn't we be on TikTok so we could be informed like everybody else or all the young people we're dealing with? That is true. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, some of my 12 year old students were like Selena Gomez or Ariana Grande. And I had no idea who these people were. Apparently they are really popular celebrities among younger people, maybe, maybe even people our age. And I remember I had to go to Wikipedia. That's the place that at least gave me a base knowledge to learn about who these people were. And so you're right. Like you and I might be able to rattle off some capitals, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that we don't know that other people might think is real base knowledge. And therefore, do you think today it's easier or harder to even prioritize what's important knowledge to know? I think it is harder. And it's also very much in the eye of the beholder. When I talk with my parents, they always mention things that they read about in the Times because that gave it some more gravitas or more because they just read the New York Times, but I view it as having more gravitas. And I like to make reference to things that I've read in the New Yorker or the Times. Maybe I'm just being pompous, but I value those things. I don't know if other people value those things. I don't think so. In fact, if anything, I would say the last 10 to 15 years, as the internet has only exploded I feel like we've seen an increase in the rise of anti-intellectualism, right? It's almost now kind of cool to not know anything. I've noticed that a lot of my students in their class, they will call each other tryhards, right? Well, this kid really tried on that assignment. As if that's a bad thing to have done your assignment to your best or to really work. Just the other day, I had a kid go, uh, Mr. Beale, I just wanted you to know that like, I really tried on this one. And I was like, well, don't say it as if you should be embarrassed that you tried, right? But yet there seems to be this world now where you kind of almost don't want to announce how much you know, as if you're going to get torn down from it. I was thinking about Dr. Fauci at this point, who's been on the media a ton over the last year, as he is one of our leading experts in infectious disease. And yet he's now become this polarizing figure of Instead of, well, he's the smartest man we have in our country about disease and how it spreads, people now want to take shots at this guy as he knows too much. We can't trust somebody like this. Yeah, this anti-intellectualism or anti-effort, the try-hard thing. Also, I hear my son saying, criticizing somebody for being sweaty because you try hard. I was like, well, you got the wrong father because he's always very sweaty and always tries hard. It's very interesting. I don't know what the point is of being anti-intellectual or anti-effort. I think these are the Protestant work ethic things that we were raised upon. Right. The best thing you can do is give your full effort, right? And yet I just find that people kind of mask things now. And is that something where we've seen enough successful people that we just think that successful people are just good at things because they, they got out of bed today? And as we all know, whenever you look at like great athletes, right? The one thing you never understand is how many hours a day they spend at their craft, right? You know, you think just a really good Hollywood actor just shows up on the set and can act. And yet you realize that like they spend a ton of time memorizing lines or working in front of a mirror. You forget that like successful, talented scientists, engineers, doctors spent years of their life studying, working at something. And that it doesn't just all come naturally. And therefore, is it one of these things where when all of a sudden we realize, man, that's really difficult, I better not let people know how hard that is or how much practice that takes. I'm just going to either pretend like it wasn't hard or I'm just not even going to try to master something because it's hard. And then I'll just kind of take other people down who have. Is it possible this is a generational thing? 
in the 50s and 60s, in the 50s, it was important to work hard. The greatest generation people, and they went to war and they came back and they built this economy through unionized labor and creating a whole system. And then the 60s were a rejection of the 50s in that it was, okay, well, you think you're part of the man, you're too stodgy, you need to think greater about love and peace and very anti-hard work. And then you and I are born in the, I'm born in 76. I think you're born 79, 80, something like that. Yeah, 81. Yeah. So there, now we're a little bit the other way. As much as we were the Generation X people growing up listening to Nirvana, we are very much a generation of putting in the time, putting in the effort. And I wonder if this next generation is one that's more like the 1960s generation is don't be so hardworking. Think about the, the whole big picture, man. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I was just thinking about like Mozart and you listen to the stories of his unhappy childhood where his dad was beating him all the time unless he was practicing the piano. And obviously he was a genius and became great at it. But there was still clearly a ton of work in the process. My mother, who's an artist, teaches drawing, right? And I took her class during the, the spring lockdowns and she was offering it through Zoom. And I was, I've always wanted to kind of learn how to draw or be a great artist. And, you know, my mother definitely pointed out a lot of interesting points about drawing and how to see the world. And it was really interesting. But then the next part is, is once she's kind of unlocked the key to how to become a better drawer or how to become a better artist, you then realize there's just hundreds and thousands of hours of work ahead of you at, at, at doing it, right? And that's like anything else. That was Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, right? The only way to get good at something is just to practice and practice and practice. And I think sometimes we forget about that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I remember talking to a uh, talking to a guy that I met whose good childhood friend played in the NFL and was a national champion. And he said, well, there are 10 guys who are just as talented as this guy, but he worked hard. And I was like, yep. oh, yeah, that's right. And if you look back, there's these playground legends of basketball. They were absolutely incredible. And Tyler Cowan interviewed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he asked him about one of these guys. And Kareem was like, yeah, he could dunk, but he didn't have any shot. He didn't have any real dribbling skills. And you realize that for everybody we hear about, there's a lot of other people that were just as talented, but didn't put in the time and the energy. And you can see these people in the world of track and field. They burst on the scene, then quickly recede while others stay around for 20 years. This work ethic is something that athletics really glorifies. I mean, perhaps athletics is our true meritocracy, where in most sports, anybody can do it. And the time you put in paired with your talent shows your ability. But it doesn't seem to be cool to put in the time anymore. Or at least it's a mixed message, I feel like. Right. And athletics still has that black and white of you either won or you lost or you made the basket or you didn't or you met the time or you didn't. And yet so many other things in life like engineering or science are really complex, right? And it takes years of study just to be able to get yourself up to speed to have really hard conversations and stuff like that. And it does make me wonder if, do you think the rise in anti-intellectualism has come from the fact that it's really hard to understand what people are talking about? When you hear a Dr. Fauci talk about infectious disease and talk about you know the R value of 
spreading and stuff like that. All of a sudden, it's like, I don't know what they're talking about. Or when all of a sudden you just see the government come out and literally close down parts of society, right? All of a sudden, the restaurant that you owned is just told to be closed because it's going to be safer for people, right? All of a sudden, you're being told that your kids can't come to school because it's not going to be safe. And you're kind of skeptical of it, right? You're walking around, you're seeing a lot of people fine from this coronavirus, or you know people that maybe tested positive for COVID and they didn't show any symptoms or they were fine. And therefore everything that you see doesn't match up with what these quote unquote experts or leaders are telling you. Is that a legitimate reason of why people question stuff? It might be a reason, but you've really lost me here. Like the R value is not that complicated. I read a short article about it. It makes sense. How many people pass on from, get the disease passed them from an existing case? And it doesn't take that much, but people don't seem to want to look at that or, or really think about it. And they think that their knowledge is just as good as everybody else. But this isn't really new. I remember we were doing an anti-smoking lesson that was dictated by the district 15, 20 years ago. And the kid would raise their hand and say, my grandma smokes three packs a day and drinks a bottle of Jack Daniels. She's 99. She's fine. Like, oh, yes. Well, clearly your example has invalidated all this research. People have always felt this way a little bit. It just seems to be gaining traction. Perhaps the social media aspect and the democratizing of effect of it that everybody's thoughts count and the funniest or most interesting or most catchy thoughts can really gain traction that has changed that perspective on the national level about it. Well, that's really what's interesting then is Wikipedia, again, is created by kind of non-experts, whereas Encyclopedia Britannica, all of those entries were written by scholars, right? They were written by experts, people that had studied the field for a very long time as you said, with the internet, it's a it's a flat playing field. Everybody's voice kind of has an equal weight when it goes out there. Is that a problem or is that a good thing? Because here we are celebrating Wikipedia, right? Maybe the great success story of the internet. And yet it's also a place that you could say discounts experts. Yeah, absolutely. Or it's just enfranchising experts that are not working for their compensation, that they're really Wikipedia is a set of links to already existing data that people have made more obvious or more easy to access. The data's there and the references are to mostly intellectual property that is pretty impressive. So it just makes it easier for people to get to. About 10 years ago, I came across this book called The Dumbest Generation. The book was about the idea of kind of anti-intellectualism, but it was also about the generation that's sort of, I guess you could say below us, again, kids that grew up in the mid-90s and stuff like that. And the author's sort of thesis was, here we are in an age where our phones and our technology can access all information that we want. And we always tout that about the internet, right? Anything you want to know is just at the touch of your fingertips. And yet, here we are as a, as a generation that kind of, again, celebrates our ignorance, right? We, we call everybody a try hard and we almost sheepishly don't want to let people know what we want to know. And their big point was, here we are, you can know anything. And what does this gener generation choose to do with its ability to know everything, which is to basically just get on social media and pass around smiley faces or keep Snapchat streaks alive and basically just sort of gossip and choose to turn our back away from all of this information. Do you think that's a good critique? I think it's very fair. 
I think that it's uh, social media is the derivative of passing notes around the high school classroom of what's funny and silly and making fun of people and mostly mean and unhelpful. But yeah, that's that's where we're using it. And therefore, the other half of the article sort of talks about the game of Jeopardy. And yet here you are, you know, we just talked about how people maybe want to hide what they know. But yet in certain forums, it's still cool to know a lot of things. And the article goes on to just talk about how the game of Jeopardy is still extremely popular. It makes like $125 million a year in syndication. It's been on forever. I mean, I can remember watching it when I was a young kid. And yet still people tune in because they enjoy being quizzed. I had a lot of friends too that are really into bar trivia before, of course, bars and restaurants were closed due to COVID. When you go to bar trivia, you're not allowed to use your phone and people really seem to abide by that rule. And it's still in these weird areas. People like it. Well, that it's kind of cool nerd or niche nerd is to know the things on Jeopardy. I seldom watch it, but I enjoy it. And when I was reading the article, it talked about how the people that are on Jeopardy aren't on for the money and the money's really not that good. And they don't really get huge benefits for playing it. They pay their way for the most part, but yet there's limitless people who want to go on there. And it's not about the money for them. It's about the pride and being known to in conquering this, this gauntlet. And it's really interesting that, yes, this is still cool to know things, but I don't know if that's cool with young people or if that's cool in a larger sense. Is it cool to know things or is it only cool to know things if you're on TV on a game show? Because that was the other thing I was thinking about is that if you just sort of walked around your classroom and were answering Jeopardy questions, I think most of your kids would just be like, oh, like Mr. McLaughlin, like, will you just please stop? But I think if you were on TV answering those same questions, I think you're the coolest guy in the world. Yeah, I guess so. I think the world eyes these people more with envy and resentment than they do with pride. That the people are like, oh, I can't believe Ken Jennings knows all this stuff. And how good is he? And I think of my students and how they talk about the strongest students in the school. It's almost with an eye rolling resentment that you discuss how smart these people are. And once again, a lot of those kids, they might eye roll about the really smart kids or the kids that are, you know, getting rewarded for their academic success. And yet a lot of those kids are working hard. Other kids don't see the work that a lot of kids do put in at home on projects or on you know, studying the lessons that they've been asked to learn, right? A kid who gets a five on an AP test, he might just be naturally smart, but I also bet that kid puts in a lot of time that people don't see. I have really moved on this issue. It used to be that I believed that people were just intelligent. They just had this incredible capability in their head to process information, remember everything. Now I'm realizing more and more that the boy or girl who, or non-binary, who is a dominant student is one that really just puts in the time, that enjoys it, that wants to learn these things. And I asked one, we had a student last year who was incre incredibly impressive. And I asked them, well, they said they just enjoy reading the book. They just go home and read the book or look at the stuff because they're interested and they're intrigued. It tickles their, uh, their curiosity. And that's what makes them so impressive. And it's not necessarily this just amazing intelligence. We also see kids that are very, I see kids that are very, very bright that are in my lowest level classes getting the worst grades. And they understand concepts very quickly. They just don't have any desire to go and study it because they're more interested in social life or whatever else that's partaking in their life. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Back to the Jeopardy thing real quick. They said that basically everybody on Jeopardy is brilliant. 
and that everybody on Jeopardy already knows the answer to every one of those questions. And then it really just came down to the buzzer, you know, being the first to kind of chime in because you've got to wait until the question's been read. If you click too early, you've got a quarter second, uh, like sort of penalty before you can buzz back in. And I thought that was just interesting that really when you're watching Jeopardy, everybody is so brilliant that basically it's just a who's fastest at the buzzer. Yeah, they're confident that they're going to get the answer 75 to 95% of the time, and they're going to click no matter what and hope for the daily double or whatnot. I think that's quite impressive. I know somebody that's really trying to get on Jeopardy and has pursued this for a while. I have no doubt that she's incredibly intelligent and would do well. I think it is just that. But it's not a tremendously narrow skill set. It's just knowing a lot of things. And there's a lot of people that know a lot of things. But that brings me back to my big question. What does it mean to be smart? We've been talking about knowing things, and I, you and I think knowing things are important. Does that make us smart if we know things? Is there something else that makes us smart? What brings respect if you are knowledgeable? I don't know. That's a really good question. I feel like in the old days, back in the 80s, it was about memorizing more stuff when you and I were in school. And that just sort of was enough to have a test. And if your test grade was high, then I guess you were quote unquote smart. I feel like now progressives in education have tried to change the narrative on that. Instead of, we don't teach facts here at school, we teach kids how to analyze the facts or how to sift through the facts to come up with thesis or how to use the facts to prove a point, right? Isn't that what they say we do? As you said, in your economics class, you know, you're having the kids do analysis. And I guess I'll come back with another question to you, which is, do you think we're doing a good job at that? If that's the job that we're supposed to be doing in schools, and if that's the new smart if you're wondering about what does it mean to be smart, are we doing well with that? Well, I know the big focus is on exactly what you're saying. And in history class, they look at graphs and look at maps and they look at tables and they try to make implications and draw conclusions from those things. But isn't that just knowing what a graph says? Isn't that just another derivative of knowing things? Right. That's the hard part. All right. What facts do you need? And I guess sometimes you need a fact right away. Maybe you look it up on your phone. And I guess it's applying the knowledge, right? And we in schools love to say that we are really good at having kids apply knowledge. But ultimately, you're right. If all we're doing is applying the graph to a multiple choice question, are we really doing good applied knowledge work there, right? In history, sometimes we'll sit there and we'll laugh at you know, Hitler during World War II when they decided to attack the Russians because he didn't read his history book and look at what happened to Napoleon when he tried to attack Russia and Russia can just keep moving east and scorching their earth and all of a sudden, before you know it, it's winter and your tanks are all frozen and oh my God, Hitler didn't apply that important lesson there and maybe he could have won World War II if he just would have learned more from Napoleon. But I mean, we laugh at that, but then I don't really know if we're asking kids to take big sweeping ideas and apply it to their own life or to apply it to their future. I don't know if we're very good at it, to be honest. I'm with you. I, I'm not sure. I, I think more things change, the less they really change in that we say we're doing this, we say we're doing that, but ultimately we're hoping to have conversations with kids where they think about things and draw conclusions or make solid arguments. And we put different terms on these ideas, but ultimately it's the same ideas. You know, every year I, we teach um, in seventh grade social studies, the fall of Rome. And it's always a popular question to ask kids like, will America fall someday? And you can find people on the internet that say, yes, we are just like Rome. 
we've got leaders that are acting in similar ways or we've got social inequality and that's why we're going to fall. And other people are like, we're nothing like these people. We're not going to fall. We're America. We're exceptional. We're going to be here forever. And okay, so what are we supposed to apply from that, right? What is it that we're supposed to do in class with this sort of example of a great empire falling today? I don't, I don't know. It's a great question. I think that's a way that you can get people to think about Rome and think about what happened there and then apply it and look for things that are similar in America. But ultimately, it's learning facts about Rome, learning facts about America, and drawing comparisons. And the drawing comparisons part is the smallest and last thing that you do about all that. But is it just uh, we're trying to get people to learn the facts in order to tell them that that's our big culminating activity. And that's why we should go through this. And that's why we should learn it. But ultimately, you just need to know some stuff. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, you teach economics and you teach uh, price floors and ceilings, right? And I'm sure you talk about the minimum wage argument when you're doing that, because probably that is relevant to a lot of kids who probably have some of their first jobs and stuff like that. And yet, do we teach the minimum wage and price floors and ceilings because we're trying to educate a kid so that they'll be a voter someday to either vote for the minimum wage or increasing it or to vote against increasing it. What is the whole point behind teaching that lesson, right? Or And that's not just about the minimum wage, but really anything that we teach in class. Like you and I are hired to teach a state set of standards that the state wants kids to be familiar with or to know those facts in some ways. But ultimately, we do our job. We go in there, we teach these things. And I think sometimes you and I are left to wonder, what was the point of that, right? Yeah, I guess so. I think uh, the quick answer is educated citizens, kids that think about things. I like the idea that with that specific concept that they are forced to take a position. Are you siding on the side of workers who are going to get higher compensation, but maybe there's fewer jobs? Or are you taking the side of lower priced goods? I think it makes them think deeply about what's going on. But it's really just learning a concept in depth and taking a position, which brings me back to the same thing, like learn some facts, know some things. And what can I do to trick you into learning these facts? No, that's a good point. Being aware of the issues of the day, right? Humans, we are out there, we are living, we are interacting with people, and there are an infinite number of issues that people are dealing with. And if you're not familiar with the minimum wage issue, then you're kind of not going to have a lot of empathy for either side of the issue, right? And I do think, as you're saying, it's probably important to be familiar with it. And it's probably important that you do have an opinion on it either way. And I guess you could say that at least that's what schools are doing. We're trying to give people some idea of what to be familiar with. That's sort of what Hirsch was talking about at the end of the day, too, is being culturally literate, right? Knowing a series of facts that everybody else knows so that you can at least have a conversation with people. You can at least be up to speed and ready to engage in a certain dialogue. Because if you're not even up to speed, you're like an alien all of a sudden. You have no idea what other people are talking about. Well, this comes to a point where I think the remote learning situation really struggles in that if a kid is in my classroom and we're talking about supply and demand for things and they are forced to reckon with what we're talking about in class, current events, what's happening in supply and demand and think about it. And then I can't tell you how many times I've had a student come to me after class or before the next class and say, Hey, I was at the grocery store. I noticed blueberries are really expensive. And then I was telling my mom that's because blueberries aren't in season. So supply is shifting to the left. And then I was really irritated because I'm thinking about supply and demand at the grocery store in my time. And my mom was thrilled. 
Like, yes, absolutely. I was had you trapped and made you think about something that is both current, relevant, and about the concept we're learning. And then you took it home and talked about your mom, despite your greatest desires to not talk to her. But in the remote situation, kids aren't trapped in that environment. They have alternatives. They can look around the room or look at their Netflix on their phone or look at Twitter and see things that they can distract themselves with that aren't what we desire them to learn or think about or are going to force them to think about. And that kind of goes back to that dumbest generation theory, right? In a world where we could know so much, what do we choose to do with it? And as you're saying, you're right. Remote learning, there's so many distractions for so many of these kids. And a lot of them are not choosing to engage. And I kind of do think that Hirsch makes a good point about having a a population of citizens that all are aware of similar events, similar facts, so that they can engage with each other. But then it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Dr. Fauci and and the COVID-19 and just other really complex issues. Like, do we get to a point or have we gotten to a point in our world where the facts or some of the things that people should be aware of are just too complicated for the average person to understand and think deeply about? And is that where now deep suspicion sort of creeps in? Because we can't understand it, or because it's just too hard to figure out, we now just are pushing back and saying, eh, it's probably just made up. I have another theory that it could be the social media algorithms that reward us by showing us the thing that we wanna see. The thing that we have looked at enough times, it's just gonna bring us more of the same. And whether that's the same political standpoint or the same simplistic expectations or the same articles about the British royalty or celebrities and just steer us in the path that we want to go. My Apple News feed is terrible because I only look at Apple News when I'm absolutely exhausted and I want to be distracted for just a moment. And it leads me to celebrities and sports stuff that is not deep or really thought provoking, but just makes my time go by. I was talking to your wife about this at one point. She said, oh yeah, my feed's all British royalty stuff because it's what I go to when I'm just tired and I just need to fill a moment. And that's where it's steering us, not towards more deep, more interesting, more relevant things. So did you just explain why I have a bunch of pro wrestling news that shows up on my feed? Exactly, because you don't really want to think about really deep, meaningful things. You want to think about is Hacksaw Jim Duggan and his victory at the Royal Rumble put him in the pantheon of best wrestlers ever. And that's where your mind goes when you have it in neutral, because you're like, I just uh, just want to just go through this and just make it to tomorrow, get to bed. And that's what people are rewarded with and leads them down a path of not deep, introspective thoughts or things they haven't seen before. This is why I love a print newspaper, because I'm looking at all the stories, not those that are catered to me and what I'm likely to be interested in, because what I'm likely to be interested in isn't necessarily what I'm interested in. I want to see the whole slate and then figure out what I want to read based upon what is offered instead of being told what I like based upon my previous readings. And that's a good point. Print newspapers obviously are run by an editorial board and they quote unquote decide what the news of the day is, right? And people that believe there's a liberal media bias out there, they believe that those editors have just chosen a certain set of stories to, you know, kind of persuade the public to see something. And you could say that the Encyclopedia Britannica, it was limited, right? It was a physical printed book, at least for a while. Therefore, they didn't have all of the 
facts that were out there. They still had to make decisions about what people might look up or what they should be looking up. Whereas Wikipedia is this endless thing. You can continue to add entries whenever you want. In fact, I think it was our hero, Tyler Cowen, who once asked the question of what's the most important thing out there that's not in Wikipedia? And I thought that was a really interesting question to kind of think about. Absolutely. And as you were saying about newspapers, they do provide you with these opportunities. I read the Wall Street Journal Monday through Thursday, Monday through Saturday, and then the Sunday New York Times. The Journal's on the right, the Times is on the left, and I'm able to draw comparisons from that. But that's provided that I'm looking at it. I'm also reading things I wouldn't normally seek out. In Wikipedia, as you mentioned there, it is everything. But I don't know what the most relevant thing is that's there. It's not there. That would be a heck of a project. That would be a good assignment for a class. What's the most interesting thing that's not in Wikipedia? And then create the page. Yeah, and then create the page and then ruin it. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny though. I was I was thinking about this topic and and sort of what we wanted to discuss from it, and I kept wondering. Has this whole idea of facts and and knowing something, is this just like a new problem that the New Yorker brings up? Or is this an age-old question? And I started going back to thinking about something that, again, I teach in seventh grade social studies. It looked at the ancients and it looked at Socrates. And of course, Plato was the voice of Socrates. But there's this interesting dialogue that Socrates has with the Egyptian god Toph. And Toth was the god of wisdom. He also invented writing in ancient Egypt, according to the mythology. And Socrates has this really interesting point he makes about writing. And he's really skeptical about the invention of writing. So this is thousands of years ago. And Socrates just said this, and I want to read it to you because I think it makes a lot of points that we're having today. He writes this. He wrote, you have not discovered a potion for remembering But for reminding, you provide your students with the appearance of wisdom, not with its reality. Your invention will enable them to hear many things without being properly taught. And they will imagine that they have come to know much, while for the most part, they will know nothing. And they will be difficult to get along with, since they will merely appear to be wise instead of really being so. And that's Socrates, thousands of years ago, talking about why writing is a bad thing. Is that any different than what we're talking about today with the internet and facts? Just because you know some snapshots does not mean you know a whole lot or really understand. Or should we listen to that scene in uh, Goodwill Hunting where he says that you know a bunch of facts and stuff and you can quote me phrases, but you don't know what it's like to be in love? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thought. The other question I wanted to sort of ask you is there was a sci-fi book that I read called Feed 10 years ago. And in this one, the author promotes the idea that at some point we are going to have internet chips just sort of planted into our brains, or there'll be a way where you don't need your phone anymore. You can just think it And then you'll be able to see the information either in your eyes or maybe you've got those Google glasses back on and you can see it right there. And therefore, really we'll be at a point where the internet could just kind of think for us as we just sort of instantly know information. Do you think that's a possibility or do you think there could be a load of problems if literally at some point we could just look stuff up in our minds? I don't really think so. And here's why. I think that the phones have tapped into a little bit of what people really want to see. And I would have thought that with the processing power and the connectivity capable in the phones, that the video games the kids would play would be far better. 
but they're really no better than Atari games in graphics and what they're doing. Among Us is currently really popular, and it's just a, it's not any better than Donkey Kong, except for it's slightly interactive. The graphics aren't great. The processing isn't great. Also, Twitter is incredibly popular. What is it? It's 240 characters. It's not like something that's showing us videos and movies, although TikTok's doing so. I think it taps into what we want to see. Google Glass was seemed to, which were the Google Glasses you're talking about, where you could see and record everything. That was much was made about those, and they came and went like a tide. They had very little impact. People didn't really want to use them. And I'm not sure people would want an internet chip in their head. I think they just want exactly what they have, their phones. Maybe. And, and I could definitely see where you say, no, nah, it's just, you're right. People only want a certain amount of information at the touch of their fingers. And I think, you know, you mentioned those games and those activities. And one of the things I think we're forgetting is just how social those, those things are. And I think that's why they're so popular is people can play with their friends. They can, you know, compete against their friends. And I think there's a real allure to that Twitter. I think people are addicted to it because they're seeing what their friends and other people out there are thinking or what crazy things people are saying at the same time. It is, it would be kind of a solitary experience to have the internet in your brain. But at the same time, what if those chips essentially are also allowing you to be constantly connected to other people from a social media sense? Therefore, eh, I'm not really going to use this thing to, to learn more facts or have more facts at my fingertips. But instead, I'll just be constantly connected to everybody. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe we'll be amusing ourselves to death. Wasn't that a book? I think I read that at some point. Yes, one of the great books I've ever read. That will have to be a different podcast for a new day. But in a way, that book sort of kind of predicted the era that we're living in. The book came out in the early 80s, and it was all about sort of a critique on how we communicate with each other and how TV has really changed how we behave and, and stuff like that. In fact, one of the great questions they asked is, is Sesame Street a really evil thing? And the whole point was that Sesame Street was one of the first things that sort of convinced kids that if learning's not fun, it's not worth doing, right? If you're not laughing along with Big Bird doing your alphabet, is it possible that then there's no point in learning something? Yeah, I, I can't think that the chip you talk about is going to lead us to deeper, more introspective thoughts. I think it will just lead us to more surface value, who's attractive, who's not attractive, who said something dumb, who said something funny, more of that. Just, again, just laughing at what we've laughed at in the past or seeing what we've seen in the past or something very similar to it. And that's kind of the last sentence of Socrates, right? He said, and they will be difficult to get along with since they will merely appear to be wise instead of really being so. And I wonder if that's kind of what will end up happening even more. There's just a, a real superficial level to everything. Well, they'll still be high nerd of Jeopardy. That seems like that's going to carry on forever, even though sadly Alex Trebek is no longer with us. And there'll be Wikipedia as a resource. But ultimately, I don't know if that makes people smarter or more interesting or looking to become more so. Well, that leads me to my last question then for you is they talked about Jeopardy and they also cited America's love of quiz shows. And they go back to the quiz show scandals of the 1950s, where there was a guy that basically was being given all of the answers to all of the questions because the, the quiz show producers realized people like winners and they tune in every week 
as the stakes seem to get higher and higher as people keep showing more and more success. And therefore, let's just give all the answers to these contestants so that they'll keep winning and it will just grow a larger and larger audience. Like they talked about how like 20, 30, 40 million people a night would tune in to watch these quiz shows. Now, again, there were barely any channels on and stuff like that, but it got to a point where we had congressional hearings done where Congress was like, this is ridiculous. You can't be giving the answers to these people. And so they talked about how everybody asks Jeopardy contestants, what's Alex Trebek like? And all of them are like, I don't know. I only met him on the set at the very end because of the quiz show laws that we still have on the books where basically you can't meet the host because they might give you the answers. So nobody even gets to meet Alex Trebek, which I thought was interesting. And that brings me to my question to you, which is, do you think if the quiz shows were staged today, let's just say all the Jeopardy contestants were just given the answers. Do you think people would care? Would they not tune in? Or do you think they would tune in in the same numbers like they used to? Well, they would because they tuned in for Ken Jennings and his run. They tuned in for this other guy that recently had a run. And then they had the overall super championships recently. And people tuned in for that. They would. And imagine if we could pick the winner and they were super good looking or then we could tune in even more. Well, that's what I was wondering is like, do you think if we found out that Ken Jennings was cheating the whole time, if we'd care? I mean, We watch reality shows, and those are mostly staged at this point. I mean, we love pro wrestling, and we know that the uh, outcomes are already predetermined. I'm not sure if you didn't know that, Don. According to The Rock, the the ones where he won, he straight up won, but the ones where he lost were predetermined. That's right. That's right. He didn't know there was a guy that was going to come and hit him with a chair from behind. Yes. Um, But I just think, like, would we really care if we found out that, yeah, like, you know, they they knew the answers. It was just a, a, a nice piece of art that we were watching. (laughs) <laughs> I think that would work for some people and not for others. There are others that are purists that would be really upset. It's an interesting topic. And the idea of just what is important to know, I wish I had an answer for it. I mean, you and I are teachers and we're supposed to know what's important, right? And obviously you and I teach what the state tells us because they decided what's important. But yet half the time, most people complain about what's in curriculum in general. And I guess it just sort of always goes back to that age old question. We all believe school's important. But then what is it we're supposed to do there? And I feel like a lot of us are still asking those questions. Hey, good. I'm glad we're asking those questions. Other than rather than just being happy with whatever's happening. And we should be thinking about what we should be thinking, what we should be teaching. Yeah. And I guess at the end of the day, isn't that ultimately what I guess Socrates was always uh, arguing, right? He always said the unexamined life is not worth living. I don't know, maybe I guess in some ways, as long as people are still asking these questions and still feeling like some facts are important, as long as the debate is about what the facts are, at least we're maybe still on the right path. Yeah, well, yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Me too, me too. Or I guess I can't come to a conclusive conclusion for this episode today here. No, we'll leave this one in the lurch as we often do, but we battered about the ideas. Fair enough. Well, it's an interesting article. I will, uh, of course, put it in the show notes. And uh, Don, it was a pleasure talking with you this week. Always fun. Talk to you later, Zach. Take care.